Hi, this is Phil Del Rey, bringing you a message from the studios of Voice in the Wilderness Ministries. The title of this message is simply Law and Grace. This is one of the most fascinating subjects in all of Holy Writ. It is also one of the most despised by Satan, one of the most confusing, one of the most important. I don't mean confusing. It is one of the most important doctrines, and that is why there is so much confusion about it. But it is really very simple. Before I say another word, I want you to know that I know, and I need to know that you know that I know, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, plus nothing. Our good works are the result of our salvation, never the cause of it. People need to understand that. Many people don't. Please hear it again. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, plus absolutely nothing. Our good works, our changed attitudes, our changed behavior, our growing in Christ, our growing in grace, those are all the results of our salvation, never the cause of it. <clears throat> William Barclay, the great Scottish commentator, once said, All the great men of God have agreed that it is only when a man obeys God that he becomes truly free. Obedience, a hard word for many people. There are many people who think that they are saved because of their good works. That's one extreme. In fact, 30% of the Gospels are dedicated to a group of people known as the Pharisees. Jesus told us to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the false teaching and the false doctrine of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were legalists. <clears throat> they believed their salvation was tied to good works. You have legalism on one end of the spectrum. You have antinomianism on the other end of the spectrum. One end says you're saved because of your good works. That's legalism and antinomianism is the idea that you can live any way you want to. There is no law. That's what the word means, no law. And the idea is that you can live any way you want to since Christ died for your sins. Since we live in the age of grace, there is no law whatsoever. Both are patently false. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, <clears throat> arguably one of the greatest minds in the history of the church since the Apostles, he has more books in print today than any other man alive or dead. Charles Haddon Spurgeon in 1855 said in a, in a sermon entitled simply Law and Grace, There is no point upon which men make greater mistakes than upon the relation which exists between the law and the gospel. Some men put the law instead of the gospel. Others put the gospel instead of the law. Some modify the law and the gospel and preach neither law nor gospel, and others entirely abrogate the law by bringing in the gospel. Many there are who think that the law is the gospel, 
and who teach that men by good works may be saved. Such men do err. On the other hand, many teach that the gospel is a law, that it has certain commands in it by obedience to which men are meritoriously saved. Such men err from the truth and understand it not. I'd like to remind you of the very first sentence in his opening statement in that sermon. He said, quote, There is no point upon which men make greater mistakes than upon the relation which exists between the law and the gospel. Yes, there is a direct relationship between law and gospel. Many people think that law and gospel are opposed to each other. But the fact is, the law and the gospel embrace each other. I'll show you what I mean. Here's an example. From the Ten Commandments, before God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments, they had just been redeemed. They were in 400 years of slavery. God brought them out of Egypt with ten demonstrations of power. Pharaoh finally told the Israelites they could go free. Uh, Moses was told to uh, tell the Israelites to paint the blood of a lamb over their doorpost. The angel of death passed over the Israelites. All that was a picture of redemption. They were redeemed by the blood of the lamb. It was after they were redeemed that God brought them to Mount Sinai and he gave them the law. He gave them the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Here's my question for you today. Is that law or is that grace or is it both? I say, I believe, I'm convinced that it's both. Think about it. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, I'm the one that brought those plagues. I'm the one that brought you out. I'm the one who redeemed you from slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Didn't Jesus say essentially the same thing in Matthew 6.33 when he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. God the Father and God the Son are both saying, Get your priorities right. Put God first in your life and he will bless you. When he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, he settled the identity crisis for the Israelites. You have to remember they lived in a land of, of pagan idolatry for 400 years. They had completely lost sight of who they were and whose they were. And when God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Friends, that's the greatest thing you could ever know. You can't know who you are until you know who God is. And when you know who he is, then you know who you are. And when you know who you are in relation to who he is, then and only then 
can you begin to live freely? In the book of Romans, written 40 years after the ascension of Christ, the church is now 40 years old. Paul writes to the church at Rome in chapter 3, verse 31, and asks the rhetorical question, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Paul is saying, now that we live in the dispensation of grace, now that we have the full understanding of redemption, the thing that the prophets themselves did not fully understand, the things that angels longed to look into, we have been given the complete revelation of God's plan of redemption for the world. We're living in the dispensation of grace. We don't need animal sacrifices anymore. The sacrificial system has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ once and for all. When he said it is finished on the cross, it means paid in full. But then he goes on. He, he says, do we make void the law through faith? Is the, is the law of, of no use? Now that we live in the dispensation of grace, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. What is he saying? Friends, listen carefully. Think it through. Grace presupposes law. The doctrine of grace, pure grace, is just as offensive to a self-righteous person as the doctrine of law is because grace presumes and assumes that you've done something wrong. The doctrine of grace is the idea that you've been pardoned for your sin, pardoned for your crimes. And the crime is nothing short of murdering the Son of God. That's what Peter preached when 3,000 people were saved in the book of Acts after the Holy Spirit fell and the church age began. Three times in that sermon in Acts chapter 3, I believe it is, he said, you murdered the Son of the living God. God is willing to pardon all those who come to Christ by grace through faith in Christ. It's called grace, and it presupposes law. So we do not make void the law through faith. On the contrary, we establish the law. Grace presupposes law. In Galatians 3.24, Paul has to write to the church in Galatia because the Galatians wanted to add one thing to grace. They wanted you to be circumcised. They wanted you to become a Jew first. The idea was if you could just become a Jew first, maybe we could live with this idea of being saved by grace. So Paul writes to the Galatians and says, The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The minute you add one thing to grace, it's no longer grace, it's works. In Romans 6, 1, Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Saints, here's a sticky part for, for, for many people who don't understand this relationship of law and grace. The law points me to Christ. It points me to grace. That's what Galatians 3.24 means. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. 
That's the whole point of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament shows us that we have broken God's law and it points us to God's grace, to, to the New Testament. Of course, grace was found in the Old Testament. They were always saved by grace. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Grace is found in the Old Testament and law in the New. The law points me to grace Grace saves me and turns me right back around and says, Now walk in holy obedience, not to get saved, but because you are saved. Hear it again. The law points me to grace and says, You need a pardon from sin. Grace turns me right back around and says, Now that you're saved, now that you're a Christian, should you continue to break the law? Should you continue to sin that grace might abound? God forbid! How shall we who died to sin, i.e., how shall we who died to breaking the law, live any longer in it? What about, remember the woman caught in the very act of adultery? The law brought the woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus. Jesus is grace personified. They throw her at the feet of Jesus and say, the law demands her stoning, demands her death. And Jesus said, you're absolutely right. Let he who is without sin among you throw the first stone. And they all walked away. He looks at the woman and says, where are those who condemn you? And she said, there are none, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What does that mean? Go and sin no more. Jesus gave her a pardon because she knew she was condemned. So he tells her, neither do I condemn you, i.e., I forgive you. Go and sin no more. What does go and sin no more mean? Didn't grace point her right back to the law and say, now walk in holy obedience? Of course it does. Titus chapter 2 teaches the same exact thing. It says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. What's that? The grace of God has appeared. That's Jesus Christ, grace personified. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And what does grace do? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. R.C. Sproul said, The two great distortions of understanding Christian truth that have plagued the church, not just from the first century, but from the Garden of Eden, have been the distortions of legalism and antinomianism. Legalism is the deadly heresy that teaches that people can be saved through their own acts of righteousness, that people may be saved legally through performing the works of the law. Antinomianism is the heresy that says, because we're not saved by law, but by the gospel, not by merit, but by grace, not by works, but by faith, that therefore the Christian life has nothing to do with law, nothing to do with obedience. That's antinomianism. Legalism, and by clo close quote, by the way, now this is me speaking, legalism is the idea that you can add anything to your salvation by what you do or don't do. Antinomianism is the idea that you can live any way you want to since Christ died for your sins. 
Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by the grace of God you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there we are. We're saved by grace. Grace turns us right around and says, Now walk in holy obedience. Do good works. Most of the confusion, I'm convinced, where the law and grace is concerned is based on the fact that we fail to discern the difference between the ceremonial law, and that's and, and I mean this in reading scripture. We fail to discern the difference between the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. The ceremonial law has been done away with. The idea that that's the, the, the laws of the Jewish laws of feasting and fasting and the sacrificial system. It's been done away with. And yet, it still serves a purpose because it provided 1,500 years of historical, theological context that God could only accept a perfect sacrifice, that there's no remission of sins except through the shedding of blood. All of that animal sacrifice pointed to Jesus Christ so that when Christ came, when John the Baptist saw Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There, were, there was 1,500 years of historical context so that when the Lamb of God did come, this would all make sense. So in that sense, the sacrificial system still provides an historical context, but it has no relevance whatsoever to our redemption. The civil law of ancient Jerusalem has nothing to do with 21st century Christians, but the moral law, that is the Ten Commandments, has never changed. The definition of sin has never changed. In Romans 7:7, 7, Paul said, I would not have known what sin was had the law not said, Thou shalt not covet. That's New Testament theology. 1 John 3:4 says, Sin is the transgression of the law. So, he's talking about the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And just as God has never changed, the defi his definition of sin has never changed. One of the most oft often quoted verses when people reject this idea of any type of law or obedience to law for New Testament Christians Many people will appeal and say, well, don't you know we're no longer under the law? We're under grace? And when I hear that, I, I like to gently say, well, do you know where that's found in the Bible? And the vast majority will say, well, no, I don't, but it's in there. And I like to say, well, what law are they referring to? Are they referring to the civil law? Are they referring to the ceremonial law? Uh, the law of Moses? The moral law? Uh, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, what law are they referring to? And most will admit that they're not really sure at this point. Well, that verse is found in Romans chapter 6, verse 14. And if you read that verse in context, you will discover that the entire chapter of Romans 6 is about giving up, breaking the law. It's about dying to sin. 
And that verse is only, when people say we're no longer under law but under grace, that's only half of a verse that lives in a chapter that lives in a book. It's found in Romans 6, verse 14, which says, For sin shall not be master over you, Christian, for you are not under law but under grace. In other words, now that you have been redeemed by grace, sin is no longer your master. You are no longer under its power. You are no longer under its condemnation. You are not under the law. You will not be condemned by it. You uh, are no longer held guilty. There's no guilt. You're free from the guilt and the shame and the presence and the power of sin, and the condemnation of sin. You're no longer under the law, but under grace. Can Paul mean, after all he has just said about giving up sin in this chapter, that grace somehow nullifies the law? In light of Romans 3.31, that is an impossible argument. 3.31, do we nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. How would it be possible to believe that we are no longer under any obligation to obey God's moral law since it is the law that defines what sin is? Shall we continue to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Verse 15 in chapter 6 of Romans says, May it never be. In other words, should we continue to break the law? God forbid! Verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. The word slave or bond slave or servant, that word here does not carry the negative connotation uh, like that of a slave in the movie Roots. This is not the obedience of a forced slave. It's the obedience of a loving child in response to a perfectly loving, holy, heavenly Father. Obedience to what? If you're a Christian, the word slave in verse 16, or servant, is your job title, and the word obedience is your job description. The question is, obedience to what? This verse is perfectly clear. You're either a slave to sin, which means breaking the law or transgressing the law, or you are a slave to righteousness, which means obeying the law. Again, not to get saved, but because you are saved. Apparently, many people now think that since Jesus died on the cross, it's okay for Christians to worship other gods or to bow down to statues or to curse using God's name. How many of you think that God will just look the other way if we murder an infidel? Does anyone think in his right New Testament mind think that God will just smile and wink if Christians decide it's all right to commit adultery or to marry more than one wife? 
What about stealing and lying? Are these transgressions now on the approved list since Christ made a way for us? If anything, the New Testament raised the standard. The Old Testament said, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but the New Testament giving us the spirit of the law. The letter of the law said, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but the spirit of that law says, Even if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery already in your heart. If you're still not sure about this, let's look at it from another angle. What is the ministry of grace? The word grace in the Greek means not only unmerited favor, but according to Spiros Zohadides, in the complete word study dictionary of the New Testament, grace, quote, is initially the regeneration the work of the Holy Spirit in which spiritual life is given to man and by which his nature is brought under the dominion of righteousness. Saints, hear that again. Grace is initially regeneration, the work of the Holy Spirit in which spiritual life is given to man and by which his nature is brought under the dominion of righteousness. Grace empowers you to walk in holy obedience. Grace doesn't give you the license to sin or live any way you want to. Grace points you right back to the moral law and says, Now walk in the light as he is in the light. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, that means deliverance, from the guilt and the power of sin. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, here it goes, listen carefully. Grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed." and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Grace says, walk in holy obedience. When Romans 6.14 says, you are no longer under the law, it means many things. It means you no longer need to bring an animal to a priest to make atonement for your sin. I'm no longer under the condemnation of the law. I've been pardoned for sin past, present, and future. It means I'm no longer under the guilt and the power of sin. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I am now free to walk in holy obedience. Why did Jesus come? Most people say, to save us from hell. Not so. Matthew 1.21, And she shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, or Jesus in your English Bible, for it is he who will save his people from their sin. Do you know what the word salvation is in Hebrew? It's Yeshua. They shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sin. Jesus came to save us from sin here and now today. 
The very thing that distinguishes the believer from the unbeliever is their attitude towards God's law. Look carefully at Romans chapter 8, verse beginning in verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Here it comes, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So the unbelieving mind refuses to subject itself to the law of God. The obvious implication is the believer subjects himself to the law of God, not for salvation, but because he is saved. Matthew 5.18, Jesus speaking, Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Who is condemned? Matthew 7, 22. Jesus speaking, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It is the law that shows us our need of the Savior. Galatians 3.24, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. 1 John 3.4, sin is the transgression of the law. Romans 3.20, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 7.7, 7, I would not have known what sin was but by the law. 1 Timothy 1.8, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The longest chapter in all the Bible is Psalm 119, and it's all about loving the law of God. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 97, it says, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thy commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. Does that sound like a man in bondage to you? Listen to some of the, some of the greats had to say about God's law. H.A. Ironside. The great commentator, once uh, pastor of the Moody, uh, Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, quote, But that law so terrible to the sinner is a law of liberty to the regenerated one because it commands the very behavior in which the one born of God finds his joy and delight. The law of liberty... He's referring to James 1.25 and 2.10, where James clearly reveals that the Ten Commandments to the saint, to the believer, that which once condemned me, is now the law of liberty. Think about it. Once you're saved, when God says no to one thing, he's saying yes to something better. It's true of every one of the Ten Commandments. They're all stated negatively, and they all mean something positive. 
When God said, thou shalt not lie, he is by implication saying, thou shalt tell the truth. It's truth that sets you free. When God said, thou shalt not steal, he is saying, it's better to give. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Every one of those commandments points you to a, a lifestyle of holiness and obedience, which produces nothing but pure joy. John Wesley, Therefore I cannot spare the law one moment, no more than I can spare Christ, seeing I now want it as much to keep me to Christ as I ever wanted it to bring me to him. Otherwise, this evil heart of unbelief would immediately depart from the living God. Indeed, each is continually sending me to the other, the law to Christ and Christ to the law. Now, if you're not a John Wesley fan, you might be a John Calvin fan. This is what John Calvin said. We are certainly under the same obligation as they were, for there cannot be a doubt that the claim of absolute perfection which God made for his law is perpetually in force. Martin Luther, the law and the gospel are given to the end that we may learn to know both how guilty we are and to what again we should return. Walter Kaiser, who's considered one of the world's foremost leading authorities on the Old Testament, said this, The classic theme of all truly evangelical theology is the relationship of law and gospel. In fact, so critical is a proper statement of this relationship that it can become one of the best ways to test both the greatness and the effectiveness of a truly biblical or evangelical theology. <coughs> Gleason Archer, another great scholar. It was only the misunderstanding and misinterpretation of the law as a system of merit earning and self-justification, which is rejected in Romans 3 and Galatians 3 and related passages. As for the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, found in Exodus chapter 20, the whole basis of its sanctions is stated to be God's act of redemption by grace. I am the Lord thy God who brought thee out of bondage. Wow! Gleason Archer. Understand, these, these men understand it perfectly. Erwin Lutzer. Christ's answer to legalism is that external obedience to the moral law must be coupled with a corresponding inner attitude of love and honesty. Christ's teaching was not intended to abrogate obedience to the moral law, but to add to its intended spirit. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the few men who stood up against Hitler's Nazi Germany, wrote a great book called The Cost of Discipleship. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. One of the things that he articulated as good as any man in history was the idea that grace was cheap, that the church had a misunderstanding of the price of grace and what it truly meant. In his book, he said, Do we realize that this cheap grace turned back upon us like a boomerang? The price we are having to pay today in the shape of the collapse of the organized church 
is only the inevitable consequence of our policy of making grace available to all at too low a cost. We gave away the word and sacraments wholesale. We baptized, confirmed, absolved a whole nation unasked and without condition. Our humanitarian sediment made us give that which was holy to the scornful and unbelieving. We poured forth unending streams of grace. But the call to follow Jesus in the narrow way was hardly ever heard. What happened to all those warnings of Luther against preaching the gospel in such a manner as to make men rest secure in their ungodly living? The word of cheap grace has been the ruin of more Christians than any commandment of works. <clears throat> Saints, I would encourage you to study this subject further. Bonhoeffer's book is an excellent place to start. I'd like to remind you of the words of William Barclay. All the great men of God have agreed that it is only when a man obeys God that he becomes truly free. Friends, under, having a right understanding of the Ten Commandments is one of the greatest things you could ever know. Because on one side, it defines sin. The very, thing that hold, the very thing that separates men from God is sin. And that's the one thing Satan does not want the world to understand. Exactly what constitutes sin. That is precisely what the Ten Commandments does. In fact, at the end of the story in Exodus 20, God answers the question, in essence, why would God almost scare his own people to death with such an awesome demonstration of power when he gave the Ten Commandments? And the answer is given at the end of the story. It says, in order that the fear of God would remain with the people so that they might not sin. D. James Kennedy said, you cannot commit a sin outside the Ten Commandments. He is absolutely right. The essence of sin is self-will. When Lucifer, <clears throat> the first sin in the universe, was when Lucifer wanted to exalt himself above the throne of God and said, I will exalt myself above the throne of God. That is the essence of sin, self-will. The other side of the coin is that the Ten Commandments defines what holiness is. As I said earlier, when God said, Thou shalt not lie, he is saying, Thou shalt tell the truth. When God said, You shall have no other gods before me, he is saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. When he said not to bow down to any graven images, the first commandment tells us who to worship, the second commandment tells us how, in spirit and in truth, that is by faith and according to his word. When he said not to take the name of the Lord in vain, he was saying that the, the name of the Lord is to be reverenced. The fear of God is where wisdom begins. When he said, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, he was saying, take one day out of seven and set aside all your worldly amusements and rest. And in that rest, acknowledge the God who created you and the God who sustains you and the God who purchased your salvation with his own blood. When he said, honor your father and your mother, the first commandment with a promise, he was saying that we need to submit to authority because the option is nothing but anarchy. That's the reason our world is in trouble. When he said, Thou shalt not murder, he was saying, Forgive your brother. 
When he said, thou shalt not commit adultery, he was saying, be faithful to your families. When he said, thou shalt not steal, he said, it's more blessed to give. Thou shalt not lie, tell the truth. When he said, thou shalt not covet, he was saying, learn to be content. It's been a pleasure introducing this topic to you. I hope it's a blessing to you. And I hope that my hope would be that God would stir in you a desire to have a better understanding of this wonderful topic of the relationship that exists between God's law and God's grace. They are not enemies. They are friends. They embrace each other. They define each other. 1 Timothy 1.8, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Thank you. God bless you.